0: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB Public Media app. MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy Women's Health, where we discuss issues involving women's health. I'm Dr. Jasmine Kinsey, Assistant Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at UMMC. Today, I decided to dive into some common concerns I saw in clinic this week, as well as a quick review of common over-the-counter medications. In this hour, we will cover palpitations to dizziness and even the flu, how much Tylenol is safe to take and more. Unfortunately, we are not taking calls today. However, if you have questions from today's show, you can email us at women at mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy, Women's Health from MPB Think Radio. Happy Friday, everybody. You guys hear me say it all the time. TGIF, thank God it is Friday. So I hope you guys have maybe your weekend is just to kind of relax and rest, or maybe you've got a lot going on this weekend. My hope is to finally get some rest and relaxation. But sometimes, unfortunately, that does not always go as planned. So I hope that for you, though, that's what you're wanting. But ultimately, you know, I went back and forth on what should I talk about? this week. And I thought to myself, let's just cover some things that I saw in clinic this week. Um, So I'm going to kind of start this segment. One thing that I probably saw at least one person ask me about in clinic this week, and one person actually made a separate appointment for it was palpitations or heart palpitations. When I'm talking when I say palpitations, I'm meaning heart palpitations. So heart palpitations is actually something that we commonly see in our primary. Care Clinic. And it's also a very common thing that many people go to a cardiologist about because they're like, oh my gosh, is my heart okay? Understandably. And again, this is women's radio and one of the, it's actually more common in women in general to have heart palpitations compared to men as a category. But there are certain kind of, I guess, dysrhythmias or arrhythmias that you might see more in men, like particular causes of palpitations. But in general, when we look at palpitations, it's something that we often see more in women and men. And so what I found online is about... 16% 16% of people have seen their primary care doctor specifically for heart palpitations. So it's definitely something that we go to the doctor about quite a bit or comes up just as we talk about it when we're seeing our physician. So what do we mean by heart palpitation? So that's that means something different for everyone. Um, so, you know, some people say they feel like their heart is racing. Um, that is falls under the categories uh, almost like are pounding in your chest, or you can feel your heart thumping. Some people feels like their heart skips a beat, misses a beat, flutters, um, flip flopping. You know, all kinds of terms that people use to essentially. Call, um, describes heart palpitations. And some people don't just feel it in their chest. Some people say, well, it feels like I'm having these feelings in my throat or almost, you know, in my neck or something like that. So not just the chest, but all falls essentially into this category of what we call heart palpitations. So, anytime we're talking about the heart, we're like, oh, that's something pretty serious. So I'm trying to figure out when do I need to go see my doctor? Well, that's a tricky one because it is so many things that can cause palpitations. We know that sometimes our, we can have some heart racing from our emotions. You know, if we're getting emotional, excited, nervous, you know, the last thing I want patients though, to is to completely, you know, pass off their heart palpitations as, oh, I'm just anxious or having a panic attack. We really need to dive into what else could possibly be causing that. Again, when you're exercising, you're stressing your heart, you can oftentimes feel those heart palpitations. Pregnancy can oftentimes cause you to have heart palpitations or even after delivering the baby. That is something that you definitely need to be talking to your doctor about if if you've had a baby and now you're experiencing a lot of heart palpitations. You could be at risk of having a postpartum cardiomyopathy and that's something pretty serious. Things that we do can cause those heart palpitations. So caffeine, if you you know one that's notorious, um, my people that are drinking all those cups of coffee, I love the flavor of them, but definitely can do it. Are those loaded teas that you have people, energy drinks, those things that are loaded with caffeine can oftentimes cause you to have heart palpitations, Um, medications. It's, you know, when we're having cold and flu season and those types of things or allergy season, people are taking those decongestants, can increase your heart rate, cause you to have palpitations. If you're anemic, you know, that can do it. Low blood clouts, your thyroid can be off, smoking can do it. I mean, there is just such a wide range of things that can cause you to have these heart palpitations. Illness, it can be the sign if you have a fever, it can cause your heart to go up, race a little bit, and dehydration, if you're not getting enough fluids. So then you're like, oh, my gosh, Dr. Kinsey, you just listed like a 100 things. How in the world am I supposed to figure out exactly what I'm supposed to do about my heart palpitations? So happens every blue moon, once every three weeks or something like that, probably not something um, to be too concerned about. But a lot of it is the frequency. So if they're happening multiple times throughout the day, happening multiple times throughout the week. um, That is definitely something that you should be concerned about when you're thinking about these heart palpitations. The other things becomes what other health problems do you have? Do you already have heart disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol? you know smoking if you're having heart palpitations with chest pain that is concerning and you need to be seeking kind of a medical care definitely if you have chest pain that won't let up then you need to be going to an ER or calling someone and making sure everything's okay and we're not dealing with a heart attack but again it's what other symptoms you have those palpitations if you're passing out and you're having heart palpitations you need to be someone's ER shortness of breath as I mentioned a lot of fluid swelling those are the people that I want to see their doctor sooner rather than later because that can be a serious cause of other heart problems and things like that if you're you're having heart palpitations and you're lightheaded and dizzy, Um, as I mentioned before, you're fainting, those are things that I don't want you sitting on your couch be like, I wonder if this is okay. No, you should definitely be making sure that you're seeking medical care. There are also patients knowing your family history. There are certain known abnormalities of the conduction system within your heart. We call it WPW or Wilf Parkinson's white um, syndrome. That can be something that can cause you to have palpitations that need to be seen. And some people can have something we call a prolonged QT syndrome. So again, that electricity through your heart is not doing exactly what it's supposed to do. And those are the patients that we need to make sure are seeing their doctors. So. I've got heart palpitations. I'm trying to figure out what's going on. What's and what probably makes people really nervous is what's going to happen when I get to the doctor. So again, this show is not in place of medical advice or, or, you know, kind of or in place of you seeing your doctor. You know, if you're worried, always see your doctor. Don't kind of sit home worrying about it. But more so, I want to say who needs to go right away versus later but I definitely feel if you're feeling heart palpitations talking with your doctor getting a good history and figuring out essentially what's going on so what happens when you go to the doctor so again we'll take a good history try to figure out what your symptoms are if you're a woman and you've been having heavy menstrual cycles lately or you know prolonged episodes of bleeding or something like that that makes us think that you could be anemic causing your palpitation so that's a simple thing we can look at we can take Check your blood count. See, are you anemic? Check a CBC on you. Um, as I mentioned before, you know, thyro- your thyroid level being off can sometimes cause palpitations. So, if you're having other symptoms fatigue, unexplained weight gain or weight loss, changes in your hair, changes in your skin. Those things or family history of thyroid problems. That points us in the direction of possibly thyroid causing your symptoms. So oftentimes we will check your thyroid levels. If you're you know, having palpitations, we don't have a real good answer. It's actively having them in clinic, oftentimes we'll do an EKG where we're looking at your heart while we're in clinic, seeing if it has any skipped beats. A very common cause of of palpitations in our patients that doesn't cause a lot of issues can be PVCs are pre-ventricular, pre-ventricular contractions of your heart, or PACs, preatrial contractions of the heart. And some people can feel those, but a lot of times there's not much to do about them. But we can oftentimes see them on an EKG in the clinic. You might, if you have a high risk kind of history and your story's concerning, your doctor might do a t- stress test and set that up for you or do an ultrasound of your heart. Sometimes your your electrolytes can be off, like I mentioned before. If you're dehydrated, had a recent illness, vomiting, diarrhea, now you have palpitations. Your potassium level could be off. Those kind of things can cause you to essentially have heart palpitations. And for those patients who like, you know, you have palpitations, they're happening pretty frequently. These tests come back normal. We don't have a good answer. We can oftentimes put you on a heart monitor. So we they used to call it a heart, a Holter monitor now. We we call it or Zio or Zio patch I'll admit I'm not hundred percent sure I'm saying that correctly but essentially it is the heart monitor that you put that you can wear from as short as three days to up to 14 days depending on what your how frequent your palpitations are if you're having palpitations every single day I'm not going to make you wear this for two weeks I can probably get the information I need from you wearing it for a few days versus a patient that says oh it happens a couple of times a week you're a person that might be required to have this heart wear this heart monitor longer and that can give us an idea of what your heart is doing when it's having these extra beats or or, or skipping or things of that nature to get a better idea. So workup can be blood work and it can be um, looking at your heart in general but the big thing that helps us in these heart palpitations is the history. So make sure you're paying attention to what you're doing and what's happening around you having these um, episodes and definitely if you're having concerning symptoms like shortening of breath or um, severe chest pain or things like that that are concerning. Those are patients that need to see their doctor immediately. So we just finished talking a little bit about heart palpitations. And so as I mentioned before, you know, that means something different to some people, whether that's like you feel like your heart's racing, skipping a beat, flip flopping, you know, extra things happening in your heart, it just feels different to everybody. And we talked a little bit about the causes, what happens when you you go to the doctor's office and how do we kind of figure out what's going on with your palpitations. So I do, I will say this, I do end up with a lot of patients that have palpitations and I don't find a really good answer for it. And some people it is anxiety or the stress or things that they're going through. But I consider that when I'm talking about the heart, a diagnosis of exclusion. What that means is once I've ruled out everything else, your labs have come back, you didn't have any of those red flags that I talked about, you know, then we can talk about trying to treat your anxiety and those types of things that come, could possibly be causing your palpitations. So I really don't want people sitting at home brushing their palpitations off as stress or anxiety without having had that discussion with your doctor and making sure that's what's going on and nothing else is happening as well. So how do we treat heart heart palpitations? It all goes down to the underlying cause. So if you have a thyroid problem, they're going to give you some type of replacement medication, if you have anxiety, like I said, if that comes to be your final thing, then we'll work on it. On those patients where I say we don't find a good answer, we start doing some lifestyle changes. Or even patients that we do find a like abnormality in their heart, it's a good idea to cut back on our calf caffeine and see if that helps with the palpitations and cut back on our smoking. And sometimes alcohol can even contribute to your palpitations. So making some changes in your lifestyle can really help with those symptoms as well. And then there are medications that we can give you for patients that, let's say, you just kind of feel these extra beats and it's concerning to you and it looks like your heart rate's up. We can give you medications called beta blockers, and those types of medicines can essentially slow the heart down and help with patients that might be having a lot of those heart palpitations. And some of the abnormal rhythms that your heart has can sometimes be treated with those beta blockers as well. And there's other medications, a wide range of medications, depending on what your underlying cause is. So again, it might be medications, it might be a combination of medications and some, light, and some lifestyle changes and things of that nature. Interestingly enough, one thing I will say that's awesome about this whole tech, like the technology and all the wonderful things we have is you have these Fitbit Samsung watches, Apple watches that can give you an idea of what your heart rate is and so you can even let your doctor know I was looking at my you know watch and my heart rate got up to 140 it got up to 150 and that's all information that can help us too so I think that covers a good bit about heart palpitations and that's again just a little bit of tip of the ice part, a little bit of food for thought just making sure if you're having them getting out and seeing your physician about them Now, one of the things that I see quite a bit in clinic that I think is probably one of the challenging complaints that patients come with is dizziness. And it's something that, you know, all of us, probably a good majority of patients have experienced it at some point in time in their life. So how do I figure out if this dizziness is something that I should be worried about um, or something that just kind of happened? So, again, dizziness is just kind of like the heart palpitation. It's something that's different for everyone. So somebody might say, describe their dizziness to me like they're feeling faint or weak or lightheaded, off balance, woozy. Some, the room is spinning. Some patients say they're spinning. So it really is as providers, us trying to figure out exactly what you mean when we talk about dizziness and then, you know. helping us determine where we go from there. So dizziness, there can be so many different causes. And I mean, I could probably spend hours talking about dizziness, but I'm gonna try to hit some of the high points of dizziness. So some of the things, one of the kind of most common things that is associated with dizziness and things in our patients are inner ear disorders. So this is something I see quite a bit in clinic. Um, And particularly here in Mississippi, because we have so many allergies and sinuses and all those kind of things. Our ears are full, we're congested, those types of things. And that oftentimes can cause some inner ear concerns. Another common cause is what we call benign paroxysmal pers- pers- positional vertigo or BPPV. And so we'll go a little bit more in detail about that in a little bit. But that's, you know, kind of what we call a benign is in the name, benign cause of vertigo. It's that sensation of spinning in your head, just like many other things is pretty common in women when we look at it compared to men. Again, as I mentioned before, living in the South and having all these kind of upper respiratory things going on, an inner ear infection can definitely give you um, the feeling of dizziness or that type of feeling because it's dealing with inner ear, which which has a lot to do with our balance. So that can be a viral infection just from the common cold can cause that feeling. And you can even, of course, have it from bacterial infection. So when you've got that acute otitis media is what we call it. Um, you can oftentimes get this feeling of um, feeling off balance or feeling dizzy. So, if you've got all these upper respiratory kind of symptoms, runny nose, congestion, all those types of things, and then you're feeling a little dizzy, that can oftentimes be just related from the acute infection. You can also sometimes be just anemic. So, as I mentioned before, not only anemia or low blood counts causing your heart palpitations, they can cause you to be dizzy or feel, or this feelingness, feeling of lightheadedness, and that's something we can easily figure out by getting a CBC. Um, the other thing that can happen is you can oftentimes have something we call an acoustic neuroma, and that is a non-cancerous tumor that you can oftentimes get in the inner ear, and it can make you feel dizzy. It can make you feel off balance. And again, it's really based off of your history and things like that that you can see that an acoustic um, neuroma. Why? What would make me worry about that? You have no other symptoms, and you're just dizzy a good bit. You know, you're not congested. You're not having runny nose. You're having these kind of on and off bouts of dizziness. Um, And sometimes you can oftentimes have additional neurological signs. Your your gait is off how you walk, vomiting, blurry vision. Those types of things make you think more so um, of kind of a mass or lesion or things like that. So we usually say there's some type of neurological component to that if we're dealing with that. So when we start looking outside of the inner ear, you know, think other things that can do that is, as I mentioned, not only can, you know, having issues with your heart or things like that cause you to have these heart palpitations, you can also get dizziness if you're having some type of um, irregular heartbeat. So patients that can have things like atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter, those patients can also have these essentially bouts of dizziness. When we also kind of start talking about more of like heart issues and things of that nature that can make you feel dizzy is patients who have low blood pressure, so hypotension. So if you've recently started a new blood pressure medicine and your blood pressures are dropping, then you can oftentimes have bouts of dizziness. One thing that can point you to is your dizziness more so related to your blood pressure is a change in position. So a lot of my patients whose blood pressures are dropping too low, they get that feeling feeling of dizziness when they stand up so you're sitting in a seat you stand up and whoo the room spinning, or you feel like you're, you know, you're dizzy or lightheaded. That can sometimes be related, not always, but oftentimes can be related to your blood pressure. And a lot of times, I see that in a lot of my patients that are on a fluid pill or diuretic. If you haven't been hydrating yourself very well, or let's say you've been busy or had a recent illness, and you're still taking that diuretic, and your blood pressure is running lower, then you can definitely have some bouts of dizziness just from um, from hypotension. Valve problems. If you're having valvular problems with your heart, your valves aren't working quite like they're supposed to. You can feel dizzy. Oftentimes those patients can have episodes of syncope where, where I mean like they pass out or black out or things of that nature. You can see that as well when you're having heart problems. You can also definitely patients that deal with pretty bad migraines. So if you're having a lot of migraine headaches, sometimes you can have some bouts of dizziness and things like that as well when you're dealing with migraines. And as I've said before, I call it a diagnosis of exclusion, anxiety, stress. It has many ways that it can present and some people can have some dizziness from it. But again, we have to make sure nothing else is going on. Just like with anything else, medications can do that. That's known. You know, people are known to have medications. So, if you started a new medication and you start to have episodes of dizziness, check out those side effects and see if that's something that's possibly causing some of your um, some of your concerns. It is. Is it a new medication? And probably again, one of the more challenging ones is motion sickness. So, people that you know get in a car and you get the bouts of dizziness. I feel like I, I laugh with my husband all the time. I feel like I'm too young to be dealing with dirt vertigo, but unfortunately, I've delivered and it is not fun when we're traveling on planes. If I'm looking at my screen and things like that, I've learned all my triggers. Um, so, you know, definitely motion sickness can cause you to have that feeling of dizziness. And I don't want all my diabetics to forget Hypoglycemia, so when your blood sugars are running too low, if you're a diabetic and you're having these bouts of dizziness, make sure you're checking your blood sugars and making sure they're not running too low. That's usually the more common cause of a patient to get dizzy with diabetes is too low. But don't forget, even if your blood sugars start to run really, really high, they can start making you feel pretty bad and feel pretty dizzy, particularly if you're dehydrated with it. So again, a long range of things that can essentially cause dizziness for our patients and so how what are some things that have me um, worried about my patients with dizziness so again if you we call them those red flag symptoms if you're getting dizzy and you're having other neurological symptoms weakness you're falling things of that nature those are my patients that need to be seeing a doctor immediately going to an ER um, if you're if you're having those symptoms if you're just a high-risk patient in general you know you've got high blood pressure, you've got um, diabetes, and you've got this just persistent episode of dizziness that just will not go away. So some people get dizzy, last a few seconds, go away, and they never have another bout of it. But if you're just getting dizzy And it's just not making sense. Those are patients that I also, you know, you can call your doctor's after hours line to talk a little bit more in detail about what's going on. But there are particular types of strokes that you don't have the slurred speech or the things that you see in other strokes. And dizziness is one of the signs of those types of strokes, feeling dizzy, losing your balance. And so those are the patients that I don't want to brush off, you know, feel that feeling of dizziness. As I mentioned before, one common cause of dizziness is that benign um paroxysmal positional vertigo or BPPV. And so that's, that's the kind of vertigo that we talk about or dizziness that's positional and what we call benign. So essentially that's the kind of dizziness where you have the patient that, you know, I was lying in the bed and I rolled over and my gosh, it set me off. My dizziness got set off or I turned my head a certain way. Um, And those are the patients that it's very classic. It's some type of sudden movement that they make. They can all almost pinpoint what they did that set their dizziness off. And those are usually my patients that I think of that type of vertigo um, with it. You can have some nausea. You can have some vomiting, those types of things with it. Um, You again, there are maneuvers that we can do in the clinic that can help us relieve that as well as help us diagnose it. Some patients, interestingly enough, can also do physical therapy for their vertigo and dizziness. So lots of different options, ultimately, for us to manage our dizziness. But hopefully that for those patients that sit back and like, I just don't know why I'm dizzy. Again, just like the heart palpitations, the differential is pretty long. But I hope I gave you a little few nuggets that can help you um, decide if you need to see your physician. And again, I just like to share with everyone so people aren't sitting at home, brushing off some things that definitely need um, to be evaluated. So for those who are just now starting to listen in, unfortunately, we are not taking calls today. Um, but I do, I kind of decided today just to chat a little bit about what all did I see in clinic and kind of just make a show of different common things that I saw. So a little bit earlier, if you missed earlier, you can always go to our podcast online. So the first part, we talked a little bit about heart palpitations, what that looks like, talked a little bit about dizziness. And now the biggest thing that I was really proud probably seeing in clinic today and before I, I got a chance to come in um, and do the show was flu. So flu is something that we can probably, I think safely say we will not escape, at least not in my lifetime. I feel like it's one of those things that that's kind of here to stay. So I feel when I say flu Everybody knows what I'm talking about. So flu, we know essentially is a viral illness. Um, usually, you know, it's very seasonal. We have had times where we've seen the flu in the summer, um, but usually, you know, flu kind of at one point in time, it was like in October through February kind of situation. Now we've had some seasons where it's reared its head in September. Um, so now when I look at flu, I think like September to Marchish, ish um, or I just made up a word, September to March um is kind of where we're looking at but again as we know we can we have seen some people that it's a July and they're testing positive for flu but anyway flu influenza is a flu is essentially a virus and we know it's a respiratory virus that many of us already know is highly contagious. Um, And that's why, you know, as soon as someone mentions flu, everyone is just like moving out of the way. So um, we know that the flu virus can essentially infect the nose, throat, and in some patients, a more severe illness affect the lungs and our breathing and things of that nature. Um, A lot of the information that I got today is essentially from the CDC and some of the um, things that I've seen on the CDC. And of course, just from experience in general And as we know, some people can have a very mild flu case. They get a fever, feel a little bad, and they've been around somebody else that's had the flu and say, hey, let me go get tested and essentially get tested and find out they have the flu. And then you have some people that literally feel like their life is about to end. You know, they've got the terrible fevers, lots of chills and just feel horrible. But the flu is not something to play with and those patients that have severe disease really need to be seeing a doctor because we do know that um, we do have some patients that um, have died from the flu and we do see complications from the flu each year. So I think it's fair to say that most people know the symptoms of the flu, but just for education's sake, I'll just kind of highlight those points. So one of the biggest things that we see oftentimes is fever and in some patients, that's the first thing or any kind of inclination that they have the flu is they start running the. These fevers, and sometimes it can be low grade, 100.4. The patient I saw in clinic yesterday was 103. So, you can oftentimes get some pretty high temperatures um, from the flu. You can also get a lot of chills. You know, people say, um, even if they're not running the fever, they're having lots of chills and they're alternating between hot and cold. Cough is another big one. You can get a lot of cough from flu as well. Sore throat runny or stuffy nose, lots of congestion. I think the telltale that somebody's like something's not right is the body aches. And I feel like that's what a lot of my patients struggle with. The fever's got you feeling bad, but just the generalized body aches and muscle aches and just make you, I feel like the best way, you feel like you've been hit by a truck, essentially, is oftentimes how people feel when they've had the flu. Headaches is the headache that just won't go away. That's a very common cause of the flu as well. Lots of fatigue and tiredness. And then some people can have um, the GI symptoms. So you can get vomiting and diarrhea with the flu. Oftentimes we see this more in kids with their episodes of the flu than adults. But again, you can also have some GI symptoms related to the flu as well. As I say, a lot of people get the fever with flu. There is a portion of patients that don't or are a portion of patients that don't get a fever and they can have a lot of the other symptoms that go along with it. So if your suspicion for flu is high, I always just say, go get tested because the sooner you know, the um, quicker we can treat your options for treatment or more. And so we'll dive into that in a little bit as well. But again, you know, it's interesting, I call my kids my little germ balls, and people hear me say that all the time. They're just like, they're touching things, putting everything in their mouth, coughing on each other, sharing drinks, all the things you tell them not to do, unfortunately. So it's not uncommon that that once some one person in the class has the flu, it kind of runs through the daycare center classroom or whatever it may be. So oftentimes, you know, it's pretty common for kids to get pretty sick from the flu, interesting thing that I saw in the CDC is oftentimes people 65 and older are less likely to get sick from the flu so in other words if they're around people with the flu they're less likely to get it but they can have more severe illness once they get it if that makes sense Um, but again flu can affect any age um, or any person and definitely those that are high risk of complications with the flu are our children that are very young oftentimes less than five and as I I mentioned before, our 65 and older patients can get it and are at risk of severe disease. And a lot of definitely our pregnant patients, you know, anything or chronic health conditions that can weaken the immune system can make you at increased risk um, for pretty severe disease for the flu. So as I mentioned before, and as we all know, the flu is a very contagious respiratory illness that we can get. So how do we, we all already know um, that oftentimes that we can get the flu through a variety of parts of the course, but oftentimes the flu is most contagious within the first three to four days after the illness begins. The catch is, unfortunately, is oftentimes adult or kids can infect people even before the symptoms start so again if you, hear, if you hear the word flu going around I say go ahead and put that mask on you know kind of keep your distance but you can really become sick you know within five to seven days as well so it, saying that you don't have symptoms like oh that was fine when they saw me you know you technically even before symptoms can essentially um, be spreading the flu to other people especially those as I mentioned before that might have um, a weak immune system so again you know once you've been exposed to the flu so you're like once i've been exposed when can i expect to start seeing symptoms so most people are going to see symptoms within the first couple of days of being exposed to the flu but again as with anything there's a range so you can see have symptoms as early as a day after up to four days after your exposure to the flu that you actually start seeing symptoms of the flu so we already know, how do we know if we have the flu? We have the rapid flu test um, that you can do essentially where you have a swab or they like do the little nasal swab and can let you know if you've got the flu, flu A or flu B. Yes, you can get both of them. I had my poor little patient today, my sweet little one and a half year old that I saw just had flu B about two weeks ago. And his mom's like, oh yeah, he had a Tempo 102 last night, came in for his checkup and we were chat, chatting into was like, and I was like, how are things going? How's he feeling? She's like, oh, now she mentioned it. he had a little fever last night, but today he's okay. And I was like, oh. you know, it's going around the school, swabbed him again. He had flu A. Um, so, you know, definitely you can get either flu during the flu season so just because you've had one does not necessarily mean you can't get the other um so we do a rapid flu test um and that's how we ultimately determine if you've got the flu so once you have the the as i mentioned before as soon as you think that you have the flu why is it important for you to to see your doctor because we actually do have treatments for the flu so before you know our kind of go-to was just that we had tamiflu now we've actually got two options that are for that we can use for antiviral or so to help treat the flu virus and so one um that is out now that people love to get is zofluza the nice thing about that uh pill is it's a one pill one and done you take one pill and you are done you have treated the flu um and so it's actually you know one there's not a whole lot of contraindications to Sofaloosa, again, just kind of talking with your doctor and making sure that you qualify for it. For both medications, you need to start treatment within 48 hours and the reason we like for that is it can shorten your uh, the severity of your symptoms and can also decrease your risk of having pretty significant or severe symptoms. So Zofluza one, one pill within 48 hours of symptoms and you are done. So as people say, what do we worry about? Side effects. So in comparison, I have not seen as many side effects with the Zofluza as I've seen with the Tamiflu, but again most of those side effects are GI. So you can get some nausea or diarrhea. Oftentimes you see that diarrhea in kids, but it can happen in either either group, adults or kids. And then, of course, your more severe is if you have a significant allergic reaction. You can have hives. Anaphylaxis, those types of things. But again, that's a side effect of potentially most medications you can have an allergic reaction to. But so far, Zofluza has been well tolerated, can be given to um, adults and children. The only downside to Zofluza is it is one that has not necessarily been um, approved for um pregnancy um, or um, in breastfeeding. And so that's where kind of Tamiflu gets to, gets its edge or gets a leg up in it. So Tamiflu is the one, um, the pill you take it twice a day for five days and helps you treat the flu. It's also another antiviral that you can use. Um, and, Tamiflu is safe to, again, talk to your provider before you're doing this, your your OBGYN. But Tamiflu is safe in pregnancy, typically safe in pregnancy and breastfeeding. Um, the things to caution for, if you've got kidney problems or renal disease, that's uh, um, something to look out for, for taking Tamiflu. And I've seen, typically see a little bit more GI side effects with the Tamiflu than the So, But you can get the same nausea, vomiting, you can get diarrhea. But one thing that you can see in Tamiflu that I've not seen in zooflu is I can have patients you can get some delirium or weird wild dreams is what patients have described to me and even just a headache so again we've got two great treatment options and it's one of those things that you ultimately talk to your provider about and again as we all know there is a way to prevent the flu we recommend that all of our patients that are eligible um, get their yearly flu vaccination as well so the, the flu, we can see at any time of the year, but again, typically seeing it more fall, winter um, and getting into your doctor as soon as you think you have symptoms so that we can get treatment started because it, the, you're only uh, able to get the treatment if you present within 48 hours of your symptoms. And as I mentioned earlier, if you're just now joining in, you know, I just kind of today just wanted to do a little bit of, of nuggets of information about different things that I saw in clinic today um, or not today, really this past week. Um, and, you know, just kind of common questions I get sometimes in general. So one thing um, I really like, I spent a good time about talking to my patients is over-the-counter medications. Um, and the reason I kind of wanted to end today on over-the-counter medications is because I hope I can, A, give you a little bit of information about things that we are most commonly using, but B, also to remind patients that just because it's over-the-counter doesn't mean that it can't cause harm. And the reason I say that is I have so many patients feel that because it's an over-the-counter medication they can take more than what is recommended or prescribed on the bottle and so we have limitations of that for many reasons so if you probably stop and pause for a second and ask yourself what are some of the most common over-the-counter medications that we see and um not surprising, some of the most common ones um, that I'm going to talk about today is acetaminophen or Tylenol. Probably everybody can go in their cabinet um, and find a bottle of Tylenol or acetaminophen is the essentially the generic name for it. Ibuprofen is another one, and that's an inset or non nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory drug. Um, so, ibuprofen, um, or Motrin, or Advil is the other name for that, and then or someone or leave. Um, You know, all of us can probably go in our cabinet. We don't have it for ourselves. We have it for our kids. And then another big one is our antihistamines. And so someone either has a Benadryl, a Claritin, an Allegra, a Zyrtec, as I mentioned before, living in Mississippi and dealing with allergies. That's probably something people have. And I laugh because, you know, sometimes I just like scroll through Facebook just to find kind of the funny sayings and things like that. And one of the funny sayings I, I saw was like, you know, you're getting older when you have a um, Advil in your cabinet and a purse Advil. <laughs> so you're, you've got pain medication everywhere. So we're going to dive a little bit into some of our um, common ones we see. So I like to start with acetaminophen or Tylenol because... Because it's not just something that we have that's over-the-counter, but oftentimes you see it in combination with some of your other prescription medications or painkillers. And it's also a common medication that you see when people start taking over-the-counter cold remedy medications or sinus and allergies. That's like for, you know, sinus pain and congestion. Oftentimes the pain medicine that they include is acetaminophen or Tylenol. So what exactly is acetaminophen? It is not only a pain. Pain reliever, but it's also a fever reducer. So it can do both of those things. And so many people take it not if they're running high temps, and then some people can take it, of course, if you're having some aches or pains um, or things of that nature in order to essentially give get some relief. The hard part about over the counter medications is all the different formulations, so not just what it's mixed in, but often the dosing. And so I really picked Tylenol as one of those ones because I don't think people realize that, you know, taking too much Tylenol can be harm pretty harmful. Um, particularly, it's one of those things that we see commonly in patients that are overdosing, and it is liver. We call it hepatotoxic or liver, liver toxic. It's toxic to your liver. It's taken at inappropriately high doses, um, and in some patients, we've had ingestions that have been fatal from Tylenol toxicity. So. As of right now, at one point in time, 4,000 milligrams or four grams was the max dose that we allow patients to have of Tylenol a day. But the newer recommendations are for us not to exceed a total of 3,000 milligrams of Tylenol in a day, not in one dose. Do not take 3,000 milligrams of Tylenol in one dose. Typically, the max dose that I recommend patients for one dose of Tylenol is about 1,000 milligrams. Make sure that you're looking at your bottle. So I actually look this up because I get so many patients like I take a Tylenol extra strength. I take a Tylenol arthritis. I've got regular Tylenol. It's so confusing. So usually if you're looking at regular Tylenol, just basic Tylenol, that's about 325 milligrams. Extra strength is 500 milligrams. And then the Tylenol arthritis oftentimes has 650 milligrams. I often recommend that my patients, if you're having pain um, or if you're having a fever and you don't have any other health problems or liver problems, you're usually safe to take a thousand milligrams in a dose and take that about every eight hours is usually safe for most patients. Again, making sure that you're having this discussion with your provider if you've got other health problems. The other caveat that I put in is I said total of 3000 milligrams of Tylenol in your day, again, not at one time. So if you're a person that has chronic pain, so let's say you've got chronic knee pain, back pain, or you take things like a Norco or a Percocet, don't forget that those medications have Tylenol in them as well. And so when you're calculating your total amount of Tylenol in a day, Don't forget to take into account that those medications have Tylenol. And again, as I said, if you're taking cold medications that say relieve sinus pressure, headache, pain or cold and fever reducer, make sure you're looking at how much Tylenol are in those as well. Tylenol is a wonderful option for patients who have known kidney disease um, or who are on blood thinners and may not be able to take uh, the NSAIDs, which I'll talk about next, or you've got horrible GI problems. Um, Tylenol becomes a great option for you for pain as well as fever reduction. So the take on point is only take as much as recommended on the bottle. If in doubt, call and talk to your doctor. And again, excessive amounts of Tylenol can lead to some liver injury. So please only take the medication as prescribed. So the other really common medication that I said as before, if it's not in your purse or in your cabinet or it works, somebody's got it it's NSAIDs, or the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. And so that NSAID category includes things like ibuprofen. So ibuprofen has a lot of kind of name brands. So Advil and Motrin's active ingredients ingredients are ibuprofen. Also in this NSAID category is something we call naproxen. And you oftentimes will see naproxen in Aleve. That's the name brand for it. And one that people don't always realize is an NSAID or non-steroidal is Aspirin. So I'm not talking about the people that are taking baby aspirin. So baby, baby aspirin is 81 milligrams. That's another discussion. I'm talking about NSAIDs for pain reduction. Um, so a lot of people like we I really like NSAIDs, particularly for my patients that are having pain, particularly from arthritis, a pulled muscle, a type of injury, those types of things, because it has those anti-inflammatory process that kind of really helps with the pain. But just like with Tylenol, we only want to take it as per scribe. So when we're talking about ibuprofen, as I mentioned before, looking at what's on your medication and what's in your medication, ibuprofen is that active ingredient in Motrin and Advil. Typically, over-the-counter comes in 200-milligram tablets, capsules, gel caps, or whatever it may be. Um, and depending on the person, you can take two, 200 milligrams up to 800 milligrams max for one dose. Um, again, talking with your doctor before you're looking at some of those higher doses of ibuprofen. In. naproxen you will often th- also known as a leave Well, oftentimes that comes in the 220 milligrams a day and again making sure we're only taking those as prescribed aspirin or the bc powder i'll be honest i don't think i realized how much aspirin was in bc powder um i and as a physician, am not a huge fan of BC powder, but I have patients that absolutely love it and swear by it. But it is eight hundred and twenty-five milligrams of aspirin. If you go look up um, BC powder, it's eight hundred and twenty-five. I mean, not twenty-five. Sorry, eight hundred and forty-five milligrams. Um, of aspirin. And if you look up BC Powder Max, it's 1,000 milligrams of aspirin in there. And the max dose for that is 4,000 milligrams or four grams in a day. So why do I say that that makes me nervous? one of the more common causes of ulcers and GI bleeds that I see are NSAIDs. So a lot of patients that are overusing these medications, again, not only take it as prescribed, because I have some people, I took two BC powders. I'm like, I'm pretty sure you weren't supposed to do that. After looking up all the strengths and formulations, there's none where I've seen it says take two packs. Um, So I want you to only take things as prescribed. But It can be really harsh on the stomach. So um, NSAIDs can increase your risk of gastritis, um, you know, ulcers and things of that nature when not taken appropriately or even people that just are at risk at baseline. So a lot of my patients, I say if you're taking NSAIDs for pain, make sure you're taking it with food, not on an empty stomach. And if you're having to take NSAIDs for multiple days at a time, make sure that you are using some type of antacid like Pepsi or Nexium or something like that again talking with your doctor making sure that those particular medications are safe for you to take and so um, NSAIDs the people that I want to be cautious when they're using NSAIDs are my patients that have chronic kidney disease so you know typically we do not want you if you've got kidney problems taking NSAIDs because it can worsen or exacerbate um, some of your kidney issues and those that have are on blood thinners you should be talking to your doctor to see if it's safe for you to take um, an NSAID every now and then again that's a conversation you should have and as I mentioned before if you've had ulcers before or inflammation in your stomach NSAIDs are probably not what you want and those are the patients that um, I definitely recommend that you take a uh, Tylenol instead of doing something like an NSAID or a non-steroidal. So as I mentioned before, you know, although these over-the-counter medications, you know, can seem harmless and they're wonderful options for our patients to have to take, I want you to make sure that you're mindful of what other medications you're taking at the time that you're taking the over-the-counter medications and that you're only taking them, you um, as they're prescribed. So those are two ones, two medications that I see a lot of my patients take. But it's also the ones that patients come into my clinic and say, I know it said only take, you know, two Tylenol, but I took four. And I'm like, please stop, please don't do that. Um, You know, because it definitely can seem harmless. Another thing that I do want to add that it is in fact safe to take Tylenol and Motrin together or ibuprofen or the NSAIDs there's not a reason that you can't take those two medications together. My mom will call me and she'll say, "I just took an Advil about 20 minutes ago. Can I take Tylenol?" I'm like, "Yes, Mom, you can." But one thing that we do recommend is oftentimes if you're if you're having to help with your pain, alternating them can be helpful. So let's say I take a Tylenol at 8 a.m. and then four hours later, it's too soon to take another Tylenol, but I could take an Advil or ibuprofen. Um, So those medications are safe to use in kind of combination with each other. So I hope that you guys enjoyed today's show and maybe it answered some of your questions from heart palpitations to dizziness to the flu and some common over-the-counter medications. Again, you can always listen to this podcast again. In online this is southern remedy women's health it's a production of mississippi public broadcasting think radio and is funded in part by a grant from the university of mississippi medical center and generous support from listeners like you today's show was engineered by abram nanny i'm dr jasmine Kinsey. join us next friday at 11 for southern remedy women's health and stay tuned for npr's here and now coming up next on mpb think radio this is an mpb think radio podcast